it went straight down the middle. From the Legends Golf Club in Franklin, Indiana, it's straight down the middle. The way we like our tee shots and our golf discussion. Now, here are your hosts, the 38th president of the PGA of America, Ted Bishop, and me, Brian Hammonds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Straight Down the Middle. I'm Brian Hammonds, along with Ted Bishop, and we have a real treat for you in this episode. One of the best players in the history of the game is with us, and a good friend of yours, Ted, the great Tom Watson. Absolutely, Brian. No question, one of the uh, true legends of the game, and I, I grew up enjoying watching Tom play and when I got to know him personally um, everything that uh, I thought about him was only enhanced because he's a great man as well and I kind of like to start the questioning out Tom by this were you really injured in a go-kart accident uh, requiring (laughs) replacement surgery on your shoulder (laughs) yeah yeah I was um, last November I filled I got a go-kart a couple go-karts for my grandkids uh, my kids, I got them a go-kart when they were young, and I said, you know, i got to get my grandkids a go-kart. So I built a, built a go-kart track and uh, on my farm. I had plenty of room and a dirt track, and and uh, it was not just for the grandkids anymore. It was for the adults. So I got in, I got in with uh, a go-kart and got in there and turned it over and tried to, tried to brace the fall with my left arm and just ruined my shoulder. So I had to have it replaced. And uh, I'm uh, I'm recovering, still recovering now. It's, it's a real slow progress, uh, but uh, I'll be ready to hit the first ball at, at Augusta uh, on Thursday. I'm looking forward to that. It, it's going to be an abbreviated swing. I can tell you that. Well, that was going to be my next question. Obviously, you're the honorary starter next week, so the shoulder is going to be good enough to uh, strike one down the middle. Well, the great, great thing, I've hit some practice balls. That I tell you, it doesn't go very crooked as short as it's going, but it, it goes pretty straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, this is Brian, and I have to preface that because some of our guests think that Ted and I sound alike, and they can't tell us apart. So <laughs> this is Brian. But uh, you're now retired from playing, and you're spending a lot of time these days raising money for some great causes. Philanthropy is important to you, isn't it? Well, sure it is. It's, uh, you know, uh, the wonderful thing about uh, having the ability to, uh, you know, to uh, help people uh, through uh, my celebrity, if you want to call it that, uh, to, to help, uh, you know, help, uh, you know, advertise and PR the causes that uh, uh, are near and dear to your heart. Uh, God put them in my basically put him in my uh, lap with ALS and my caddy, Bruce Edwards, who died from Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, sadly. And I told him right before he died, I said, I'm going to continue to try to raise funds to, uh, for, for, to try to find a cure to, for this disease. And we still do that. You know, it's just every year, you know, getting together with, uh, you know, with people and, uh, and, and fundraising efforts to do that. Uh, I've been, uh, I've helped other causes as well. There are vets, uh, the, the you know, various other things. But the thing that's really near and dear to my heart right now is uh, I think we finally come up with a, a really good program to create lifetime golfers. You know, I started uh, a long time ago with a, a uh, an operation called Clubs for Kids. We sawed, sawed off these adult clubs. 
uh, the, the, all the local professionals in Kansas City came and uh, they, we lined them up in a line and gave each kid a lesson with one of their new with one of their golf clubs. Well, that was fine and dandy, but where, where did they go from there? Obviously, if they didn't have a place to play or continue instruction, they probably just have a golf club they use as, their parents would use as a poker in the fireplace. <laughs> Um, then, uh, started getting, getting involved with a, uh, a, a program, uh, uh, that really was the precursor to the first tee. And eventually the first tee, uh, became the, the focus of my, my endeavors to try to create lifetime golfers. But the, the issue with the first tee is that, you know, the, we, we got kids started in the game, uh, and they got, they got somewhat proficient and yes, some of them continued on with the game and, and uh, got to be very accomplished players, but you know we we lost him over a, a period of two or three years. Uh, lost him meaning uh, you know they didn't have any places to play, uh, and you know, or have people to play with to take him out in the golf courses or or play with their friends in golf courses. So we this year uh, this, this is the, basically the third year of our program. We call Watson Links. Watson Links is a uh, is a, a mentorship program where mentors take kids on the golf course for free uh, to play nine holes, and you can sign up on the on the Kansas City uh, excuse me the first TKC website and go to Watson Links, and you can sign up uh, to to uh, play at, at thirteen different golf courses around Kansas City. And uh, you'll, you'll be put with a mentor. A uh, mentor can be any of any age, 18 or higher. They'll take you out in the golf course. But these are, these are golfers that uh, want to help these kids and have fun with these kids on a golf course. So this program is uh, really, uh, really getting off to a great start this year. Um, and to get kids on the golf course, uh, with a mentor, uh, and uh, you know, we we hope to expand this all over the country. We, honestly, uh, we hope the other organizations, this USGA, the PGA. I know the PGA has their junior league program, but uh, you know, the USGA this would fit right in their bailiwick as far as creating new golfers. That's um, and lifetime golfers. The USGA has always said lifetime golfers is their ultimate goal, and it, it, it's the same with me. That's a great program, and I was going to ask if you had plans to take that nationally, but it sounds like you do, and that's uh, that's terrific. Um, I'm curious, Tom, when you were growing up, who were your who did you look up to golf wise? Who were your heroes? Well, my you know, my mentor was my father, and and most golfers who start is their father, their grandfather, their mother sometimes, uh, who takes them who, who take them out in the golf course. Uh, uh, and and you know, kind of say here's here's the golf course you know and maybe put a club in their hands uh, it could be a plastic club and ball in the house it could be but get them out on the golf course and you know they the kids get out there and a lot of times you know they 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 are infatuated with the cart they want to get on that cart and go around the golf course but you know we we hook them with uh, getting getting them involved with uh, uh, from the ground up, basically. Uh, I always liked what uh, Ben Crenshaw said about his first lesson with Harvey Penick, uh, the great pro from Austin Country Club. Ben said he went there with his dad, Charlie. He was seven years old, put his little bag down. I don't know how many clubs he had in there. 
and Mr. Penick looked down at Ben and said, Ben, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your seven iron and your putter and one ball. I want you to go over that green over there with those holes on it. I want you to chip it as close as you can to the hole and then go put it in. I want you to do that. And for, and Ben said, I did that for about two months. <laughs> That's the only thing I did. I chipped the ball and putted it in. Well, fast forward to Ben Crenshaw's career and then of today, he was probably one of the greatest putters who's ever played the game and one of the most wonderful uh, chippers, uh, bunker players that you ever wanted to see. So he started from the hole back. And a lot of times we start the kids with just learning how to swing the golf club. Fine. I think uh, teaching them how to make short swings is a little bit easier than a long swing. And uh, I like the idea of starting these kids out short and then go longer with, the, with their swings. And we've also created a program, thanks to Jeff Bury, a wonderful pro from Kansas City. Um, uh, he had a, a, a driving range, and he created what they called a Wee Links golf course. Now, a Wee Links golf course is a very short golf course. There are six holes on it. The holes are made bigger. They're made six inches in diameter, so it's a little bit easier to make a putt. And the holes are no more than uh, 30, 35 yards long, and they have... Uh, an artificial tee, you start off you know, from, uh, from a tee and you, and you hit uh, to this, this, hole, this hole with a short flagstick 30 yards away. And that teaches you the essence of the game. You're trying to, you know, you, and, and it's, it's within your capabilities of almost any, any golfer to hit a ball 30 yards. And you know, to get it 30 yards and then get it up by the hole and, and then put it in, that's the essence of the game. Then you can move it back and, and make make it longer, hit, hit the ball longer. But uh, uh, we put uh, one of these uh, wee links in to Heritage Park uh, in in uh, Johnson County, Kansas, where I live. Uh, we're going to have the grand opening here in May, uh, and, and we have a, a great program of the Parks and Rec Department there, Johnson County there, uh, Parks and Rec Department. They have 3,500 kids that they, they find different activities for, and this is going to be one of their activities, and we, we expect a lot of activity there. Uh, get kids who've never played golf before to start the game short. Yeah, one, yeah, all they need is two clubs. They need a nine iron and a putter. That's all they need. And uh, so, you know, getting them involved. And, Ted, I'm sure you've seen it when you're over in the U.K. Uh, you, you see these wee links courses over there. There's uh, uh, I remember living St. Anne's uh, at the hotel there. There's a commons or a greens uh, between the, the hotel and the ocean there. And what's on that? It's a wonderful little short course. Uh, the, the little short course back to the Marine Hotel and North Barrick. Just a little tiny short course where you can go. And it's just for kids. You go out and as kids go out and play. Uh, that's what, uh, that's how we have to introduce the game and get the kids started, uh, you know, to, to love the game of golf, uh, with our mentorship program, we hope that the mentors can instill that type of passion, uh, and or instruction as well to these kids, uh, you know, playing, playing golf, nine holes, uh, and, uh, get them involved, bring their friends out now they'll, they'll play with you know, they may, uh, you know, you may have three friends go play with a mentor, and they may sign up again and again and again to play with that mentor because they like that mentor. 
that's how we instill the passion for the game and create the lifetime golfers. Well, Tom, that's a lot of great work, and, and particularly for a major champion like yourself. And I want to talk a little bit about those eight major championships. You had five open championships, two masters, and the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in 1982. And this is probably a stupid question, but is there one that, that stands out to you among those eight? Well, I think the one that stands out the most is the Open Championship at Turnberry in 77. They call it the Duel in the Sun. It was really hot that week. That's the reason they called it. Uh, there were a lot of there were a lot of English and Scots Scots people up there. They were just absolutely red as a beet after after following us around for two days in in the hot sun there at Turnberry. But yeah, uh, yeah, that was the year my breakout year in '77. I had not really uh, had uh, a lot of success. I, I had some success. Yes, I won the Open Championship in '75. Uh, I had an opportunity to win the U.S. Open in '74 and '75. Did not win. Uh, when the Byron Nelson in 75, uh, but I, I hadn't won very much. And I was still, you know, yeah, 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 I'm still learning how to, how to win is what I was doing. But uh, in the fall of 76, I went over to Japan. I was playing horribly and I hit this shot on the last hole of the pro-am. It was, the ball was way below my feet. And I said, you know, let me think outside the box here. Let me take the, let me take the club head back more shut and then try to open it up in the follow through, which is, is it, is what you're, you really don't try to teach teach players to do. Uh, and I hit a really good shot. And I went to the practice range after that and man, it really was working. And then, uh, I went in, I won the tournament by I don't know, six or eight shots, something like that. Uh, and that, that was the last tournament of the year in 76. And, Beginning of '77, I, I, I really I, I started running the tables. I won early at the Ben Crosby and then the Andy Williams San Diego Open, and uh, I, I got to the point where I won the Masters and, and the Western Open, and then came uh, the Open Championship at Turnberry in, in July. And you know, I just I just felt you know, I was doing the right thing with my golf swing, and I could trust it. You know, the bottom line with all golfers is, can you trust your golf swing when the heat's off? And I had begun to begun to trust it. And playing the last two rounds with the greatest player in the history of the game, Jack Nicholas, and ended up winning by a shot. Uh, when I was walking off the green, Jack put his arm around my shoulder. He said, Tom, I gave you my best shot, but it wasn't good enough. And with that comment from Jack, wonderful Jack, I said to myself, he said, you know what? I can play with the big boys now. And that was that was kind of the defining moment in my career right there. And after that, I really ran the tables for four or five years after that on the tour. Well, I think I think I'm correct on this, but four of the eight major championships that you did win, Nicholas was the runner up. <laughs> he was always there. Yeah, I tell you, every time you looked at the at the scoreboard, which I did. Uh, a, you know, a lot. I always that I had to know my position, to know what I had to do on the golf course. Yeah, uh, the first name you always looked for was Nicholas, and uh, he was there a lot. I tell you, you know, you, you, talking about Turnberry, and you you fast forward to 2009, and I had the privilege. Uh, that was the first Open Championship that I ever was able to attend. And you came close to winning another major at the age of 
59. I mean, how often do you think about that week at Turnberry? Well, I don't think about it at all until people like you bring it up, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> uh, you know, you know the way I played the game, uh, Ted, was uh, I played it one tournament at a time. You know, it, uh, I knew that uh, I, every time I, I played a round of golf, there were mistakes made. I went to the practice team to try to correct those mistakes. When I played a tournament and I didn't win, or I, I, I didn't, I played poorly the next week. I was, I was trying to develop something that, uh, in my, in my, the way I was, I was playing to, uh, to try to be there at the end of the week, uh, you know, have a chance to win. And uh, same thing as Turnberry in 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 2009. I, yeah, it was really a disappointment and. I had to travel to London to play in the, uh, the senior British Open at uh, Old Sunningdale on Monday morning. We got there, arrived at the hotel, kind of unpacked the stuff, and I said to Hillary, I said, you know, I don't know if I really want to go out and play today. Yeah. And I said to myself, you know, you, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, this isn't the way you play the game. You never play the game this way. You go out and you... Uh, you know, you, you play, you know, you go out and prepare for the tournament. You know, you have a tournament to prepare for. So I went out and I got it. Did I play well that day on, on that Monday? I just played lights out on that Monday. Everything was working great. And then, uh, you know, it was off to the races again. I forgot about it, uh, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, did it affect me? No, it didn't affect me. All I, all I knew is I was playing well. That's what, that's what affected me most. I was hitting the ball great. The only problem was that my putting gimmick that I that I found on Tuesday before the Open Championship at Turnbrae, it failed me. I lost it. I, I free putted 11 times in that senior British Open at uh, at Old Sunningdale the next week. And, and uh, so I wasn't a factor, but uh, boy, did I hit the ball well. You know, just the last thing on your majors, obviously you won a senior PGA championship, but you never won the PGA championship. And it's the only thing that is missing from your Grand Slam resume. Same was true for Arnold Palmer. That bothered him a lot. Uh, does that bother you? No, no. It, uh, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. You know, it's, the way I played the game, I was just describing it. You know, there's nothing you can do about a, a bad shot except for you have to learn from it. What did I not do right when I made that bad shot? And the same thing about, uh, uh, you know, and you, then you go out and try to correct it and you carry on. Same thing about uh, uh, golf tournaments. Uh, you know, yeah, I had a lot of op opportunities to win golf tournaments, which I didn't. And I, you know what? I won tournaments that I shouldn't have won, honestly. Um, you, know, you know, other people's mistakes uh, allowed me to win. Uh, for instance, the 82 Open Championship at Troon, when Nick Price had the lead, uh, he had hit me by five shots during the last nine holes, and I ended up beating him by shot. Uh, you know, but he he failed. He made, he made uh, I think he played four over par you know, in the last uh, eight holes, and uh, you know, I ended up winning by shot. Uh, you know, so yeah, it's never over until it's over, like Yogi Berra said, and at, uh, that's, you know, that's one thing that uh, you have to understand and, t and teach kids, uh, you know, when they, through their disappointment. He said, okay, all right, you're disappointed. What caused the disappointment? A bad swing, a bad shot. Well, go correct that. Let me help you correct it if, if you need be. Uh, but, 
you know, always think about the positive side of it. Said, okay, I was there, or I had the opportunity to win, or I put myself uh, on this hole uh, in the right position, but then I failed. Why did I fail? Learn from your mistakes. Bobby Jones said it perfectly. He said, I never learned anything in victory, ever. I learned only in defeat. On the subject of the majors, Gary Player recently ranked the majors, in his opinion, and he ranked the Masters as the fourth best major. How, how do you rank them? Well, I don't rank them. You know, you know, people always want you to rank things in order of preference, except in my case, I always wanted to win the U.S. Open. Uh, that was my number one goal is to win our National Open. Uh, and the reason was is my dad was uh, – he, he told me as a kid, he said, Son, if you win the National Open, you've beaten the best players on the toughest golf course there is, and I always wanted to win on the toughest golf courses. You know, Tom, I remember, uh, you know, I was I was at Augusta when you played your, your last Masters, and uh, I just talked a little bit about how that golf course has changed over the years, and, uh you know, particularly from a length standpoint, just how the course plays differently than it did when you started playing there. Well, you know, the, you know, the greens were changed in 1981 uh, uh, from uh, a, an over ryegrass over Bermuda to pure bank grass. And they got a little, you know, they got out of hand. Uh, there were some slopes in those greens, which caused some issues, which they corrected the next year. Uh, you know, but, but when, and when, uh, Tiger, uh, emasculated the courses, uh, hitting you know, wedges into the bar fours, sand wedges and nine irons, uh, where, you know, we were back there hitting five irons and, and seven irons. Uh, they had to do something, which they did. Uh, and they, you know, they added some link, links to it. And I remember Jack saying after Tiger won it again, he said, well, you didn't add enough length to it. <laughs> so he went back and they had some more link to it. Uh, which was necessary, you know. That's it is. It was necessary uh, you know, to try to create create the same shot values as uh, you know, you know the, that we 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 had during uh, you know the, the shorter ball area era. Uh, so you know they did the right thing. They moved it back, and you know that goes into you know you know the 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 issue of today. Right right now, we were talking the USGA and the RNA have come out with a with a proposal uh, to bifurcate uh, the the golf balls, ma- making some balls just for the professionals in their tournaments, uh, and uh, the, uh, the other balls would be remain the same uh, for everybody else who plays the game. I think that's a horrible idea. I think you know, two things that the USGA and the RNA need to address. There's two options. One is to keep the ball exactly where it is right now, but make sure, and this is the key, make sure that they have the parameters by which this ball is judged. Uh, they they have to know, you know, okay, this is the, this is the limits that we're going to allow this golf ball to go. And when new golf balls are introduced and are asked by the manufacturers to uh, approve by the USGA and RNA, uh, they have to abide. They have to you know, comport to the uh, you know those standards. That's one option, and you know, the you know the the positive on that is that you know, I'm a I love to see these guys bomb it. So I love to see how far they hit it. I mean that's just it's so exciting to me to see how far these players hit it. 
Uh, and you know, it you know to see DeChambeau in the sixth hole at uh, at Bay Hill try to drive you know drive as close to the par five green as he could around that water. Uh, you know, that was exciting. That was great stuff. That's great theater. Uh, I love to see that. On the other side of the coin, as everybody, not everybody, but the RNA and, and the USGA uh, are concerned about is, well, we have to make the courses longer and longer, therefore taking up more space, more water, more chemicals, uh, takes longer to play. Uh, those are, those are the, the negative issues of keeping the ball the same. Now, probably where I fall, you know, probably we're probably fall in, in the second option that I'm talking about is that USGA RNA come up with a, uh, with a set of parameters for the golf ball that allows the golf ball to go a shorter distance. Now, how short should that distance be? And under what parameters, 120 mile an hour swing speed, which is greater than the average swing speed in the tour. Do you use that as your parameter? All right, let's, let's just take, take that for argument's sake. 120 miles an hour. Move the ball back 20 yards, 25 yards from that, okay? So the thing I want to know, and I think is probably pretty well, you know, can be pretty well documented, for somebody who, does, who swings at 100, 100 miles an hour, how much distance will that person lose? And 80 miles an hour, how much person, how much distance will that person lose? Well, I can guarantee you they're not going to lose that 20 or 25 yards. They're going to lose fewer yards when they hit it. So it's not going to it's not going to be a, uh, a as big a, uh, a difference as it is for somebody hitting 120 miles an hour. And this is what I strongly believe. I believe that they ought to do that simply because in a week. Every professional playing the shorter ball will know exactly how far they hit the ball because they've got track mans. They know exactly uh, how far the ball is going to go with each club in their bag. Now, the average amateur, they're going to have to learn how uh, learn to play a little bit shorter ball. But you know what? In a month, two months, it'll be forgotten, totally forgotten. So I come down on that option. Let's reduce the ball back uh uh, uh, a certain amount of yardage and uh, everybody plays with the same ball. I don't like the idea of two different balls at all. Well, one of the things I love about Tom Watson, Brian, is the ability to argue with him and we don't have enough time to get into bifurcation. So, so we're going to pass on that subject and move to the next one. But Tom's never short on opinions and he's he's very honest in in his thoughts and tom i would really i'd love to know what your thoughts are you know golf is going through some very weird times right now and uh let's start with live golf does it interest you at all and and what is your take on the effect that it's had on the professional game well i i think it's had a profound effect on the pga tour i think that pga tour is is moving more and more to the uh, to the live format, uh, you know, with the projected next year of eight designated tournaments, short field tournaments, no cuts, uh, uh, and, and just the top players, I see a real danger in that. I see a danger that the tournaments, and you know this as well as I do, Ted. How about the sponsors of tournaments who are not designated, and and the players 
that uh, you know, they, they would like to have coming in their tournaments are not going to end up coming to their tournaments because they, oh, by the way, they, they're playing those eight tournaments plus the, plus the five majors and then you know, you know this and that. And all of a sudden their schedules are filled up. And they don't have, uh, you know, they won't play uh, uh, a lot of these tournaments. Uh, I think it's going to re- reduce the top players going to these, these now secondary tour tournaments. And I think the sponsors uh, uh, are up in arms about this. Uh, I think that they, uh, they see that, you know, this isn't fair. This isn't fair to uh, what they're doing in their communities to rise, you know, to raise charitable funds for their communities, guarantee, you know, having a representative field from the PGA tour. Many of these tournaments are not going to have a representative field from the PGA tour. What's going to happen there? That's, that's a problem to me. That's well, the biggest yeah. problem of this whole thing is coming up. The other thing that, that I think is a problem too, Tom, is that, and you mentioned these eight elevated events with purses of 20 million, the players championship at a $25 million purse. And the, you know, the PGA championship right now is a $15 million purse. And the interesting thing to me with that is that from uh, 2000 and uh, we raised the purse in the PGA in 2014 to $10 million. We sit here nine years later, it's increased 50%. And now it's $5 million short of what these elevated events are. Do you think that that affects the perception of the major championships? You know, it, it, to, a, to a small degree, Ted, I don't think it uh, uh, will affect it very much at all. Uh, I think the major championships still are uh, the primo uh, tournaments that players want to play in. And that's one of the reasons, you know, you know there's, there's acrimony between the, the live tour and the PGA tour, because right now a lot of those live players are falling out of the categories of exemptions into these major championships. Uh, the other thing, that, the danger that I see, uh, if they do this uh, next year in the PGA Tour, how easily or difficult is it going to be for a player uh, to uh, get on, get into that elite uh, you know, designated event? Uh, because these designated, designated events have $20 million purses. Well, the other purses are not $20 million. So these players are, who are not playing in those, they're not making as much money in the tournaments they're playing in. So how are they going to elevate themselves to get into this, uh, this, this elite group of uh, professionals playing in those tournaments? That is a real issue to me. One last question, Tom. What is keeping Tom Watson busy today? Well, today, I'm worried that uh, I'm, I'm going to miss my starting time here. Uh, I'm, uh, down, I'm in Whitesboro, Texas, getting ready to uh, – uh, ride uh, my, my uh, horse named One Alley Cat in the non-pro here in Whitesboro to see if I can compete against all these other non-pros. I still love to compete, and on the back of the horse, I'm, I'm still a rank amateur, but I've got a good horse, and every now and then I do well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let you what. Yeah, we'll let you. We, we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Don't miss that starting time. Get on that horse and go out there and do a good job. And stay away well, thank from you. and stay away from go karts. <laughs> okay. All right, gentlemen, enjoy talking with you. Thanks, Tom. That's Hall of Fame member Tom Watson, one of the all-time greats. And Ted, I I always think back to Turnberry in two thousand nine, and he talked about this, but he came so close to winning that 
Open Championship. And I felt bad for Stuart Sink. I mean, he almost felt guilty winning that playoff against Watson because he knew the whole world wanted Tom to win. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I can't tell you how depressing it was to see Tom not win that tournament. And I think it, it, everything you say about Stuart Sink is correct. Stuart's a great guy. But the, the the entire golf world was on its edge. And, you know, the irony of how things in life work out, you know, he mentioned that flight that he was on to London that, that next Monday. And honestly, I had never actually met Tom Watson at that time. And I sat one row behind him on the flight on that, uh, that trip from Glasgow to Heathrow. And I had no idea at the time, um, you know, how our paths would, would wind up crossing as him being a Ryder Cup captain when I was the president of the PGA of America. And it really was that Open Championship at Turnberry that inspired my choice of Tom as the captain. And, and the late Jim Huber had written a, a great book, and, and I would encourage any of our listeners to, uh, to grab this book and read it. It was called Four Days in July, and it was really a portrayal of that week, but also Tom Watson, the man. And uh, it it was uh, extremely influential in, in my choice of him as a captain. And the interesting thing when you talk about the Ryder Cup, Brian, is that Tom Watson is still the last winning Ryder Cup captain that the United States has had on foreign soil. And that goes all the way back to 1993 at the Belfry. So here we sit 30 years later, and that's something that the United States is going to obviously try to do this year in Rome. But Tom is still the last remaining winning American captain on foreign soil. And, and that team that he beat, that European team that he beat in 93 on foreign soil, that had Langer and Faldo and Monty and Woosnam and Olavabel and Ballesteros. I mean, that's a heavyweight team, and he went on the road, so to speak, and beat them. Yeah, and I remember talking to Jim Gallagher Jr., who was on that team, and you know, Jim told a great story. They were the team plane was landing in England, and Watson stood up and and he addressed the players, and he said, "Gentlemen," he said, "We're going to the part of the world where they invented the game," and he said, "This week we're going to show them that the Americans have perfected the game," <laughs> and. You know, that would just be a, a classic Watsonism. And, you know, the other thing that I want to just get into briefly, because um, I've talked to Tom a lot about playing and pressure situations that, that I try to relay to my players when I'm, I'm coaching. And, you know, I asked him a question a couple of years ago. I said, Tom, when you're on the 18th hole of a major championship and you're, you got a one-shot lead or you're tied or you're certainly you're in contention, you know, what do you do or what did you do to offset the pressure? How did you deal with the pressure? And boy, his answer was simple and very matter of fact. And he said, it, it reverts back to my pre-shot routine. He said, the pre-shot routine becomes the most important thing that you can do when the pressure is the greatest. And he said, that just enhances muscle memory. And he said, it puts positive thoughts in your mind. And he said, you really can't think about anything else. And he said, my pre-shot routine is what you know carried me through all those major championships that I won. And I find it interesting because just being at a public golf course and watching people play recreational golf day in and day out and how many people I see hit bad shots who 
never have a pre-shot routine. <laughs> it's just something that all of you that are listening to this podcast ought to think about. Find a pre-shot routine that works for you. That certainly was an honor to have the great Tom Watson on this podcast, and that will do it for this episode. A special thank you to Tom Watson for joining us, and thank you for listening. For Ted Bishop, I'm Brian Hammonds. Join us again next time for Straight Down the Middle.